All right, sweet. How are you guys doing? All right, well, uh, we're going to get into the Word of God in just a moment here. How'd you guys like the Bible drill? You guys, some of you guys were, <laughs> yeah, pretty good. You cleaned us out over here with candy. Um, all right, well, I want to start off this morning with a joke, if I may. Uh, I simply could not resist the opportunity, so here we go. Okay, of all 40 to 41 authors in the Bible, who was the shortest in height? What do you guys think? Yes. There you go. Boom. Give, give it up for the correct answer. Nehemiah. Okay, there you go. All right, well, we're starting a new series today in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. And the tagline, you can go ahead and put up the PowerPoint. Uh, the, the tagline for this new study that we're getting into uh, is God's work God's way. Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. Uh, so the best way to do this is if you have your Bibles open, uh, split them up just about in the half. So, so open your Bible up in half uh, and you'll probably find yourself uh, in the Psalms. Then just turn to the left a little bit. Uh, you'll hit the book of Job uh, before the book of Psalms. Then you'll hit a small book of Esther and then you will find Nehemiah. Uh, the, this book that we're going to go through. It's 13 chapters long, uh, the book of Nehemiah, and it's going to serve as a model for our own Christian service to the Lord as we seek to do God's work, God's way in our place and in our period in which we live. And so we're going to look throughout our study together uh, at the work that God had called Nehemiah to. And out of that work that he called Nehemiah to, we are going to pull out practical principles, practical lessons that God would have for you and I and the work that he has called us to do. Now, in our day and age, in the culture in which we live, work has become a negative word. Work is now looked at as something that we have to do rather than something that we get to do. But through the lenses of scripture, this is not the case. The Bible actually describes for us that you and I, you were designed to work, right? We see that in the very beginning, Adam, before the fall, was designed and given responsibility for work. And that when you and I work, it reflects that you and I are made in the very image of God. Because what did God do for six days? He worked. He made everything. And then on the seventh day, he rested. But we also know from the Bible that God has called you and I as New Testament Christians to a very specific work. But what is the work of God for you and I? Well, I think Jesus said it, said it best in John 6, 29. You can note it down. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Listen, this is the first work. Until we believe in Jesus, there is no other work for you and I to do because the Bible says apart from him, we can do nothing. And so that's the first work, right? Believing in Jesus. God doesn't want to use you to do any other work until you have done the first work, which is believing in him. But for you and I, I'm going to go on an assumption today that you are a Christian. 
Uh, if you're not, then you can listen in and uh, glean what you like, and we hope you make a decision for Jesus. But uh, I'm going to assume that what I'm talking about today and whom I'm talking to are people who have been saved. And you and I, as Christians, have a work to do that Jesus gave us. Do you remember the marching orders that he left the disciples? Do you remember the mission that he gave them? It's the same mission for you and I today. We have the same marching orders. And we find those at the end of the book of Matthew when Jesus says, go into all the nations and make disciples. Before Jesus left in the beginning of the book of Acts, he told the disciples that you are going to go and be my witnesses. You're going to represent me to a lost and fallen world. That the work of God, as you and I have believed in Jesus, that's work number one. The second work is that you and I then would be used by God so that others would be able to be a part of the first work as well. And what we're going to see through the book of Nehemiah is that God uses a man to rebuild the broken down walls of Jerusalem that had been laid desolate, destroyed. God is still in the business to this day of building. Not walls of a city, but rather building his church. Jesus said to the disciples that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's the words of Jesus. You see, Jesus is still building his church to this day. The question for us is, will we be a part of his construction project? Will we be a part of doing God's work God's way. Well, I want to give you guys some important context and background as we kind of lay the foundation for this new book that we are going to be studying over the weeks to come. As you know, different parts of the Bible are written in different literary styles, a, a literary genre, right? For example, we just finished the book of 2 Timothy. The genre of that type of book is a letter, right? It is in epistle form. Proverbs and Psalms are in a poetical style. Well, Nehemiah is what is considered, and you can put in your note-taking, Nehemiah is a historical narrative. It is a story about something that had taken uh, place in the past. It is a historical narrative. It's a story about what had happened. Now, interesting to note, you can also note under context and background, that Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is the book that comes right before Nehemiah. So if you are in chapter one, you can just look, uh, flip a page and you'll see you're, you're in the book of Ezra. Interestingly enough, in the Hebrew Bible, when these books were originally written, they were written together. That Ezra and Nehemiah, if you were to find a Hebrew Bible and open it up, you will find it as Ezra and Nehemiah, one continuous book. And it's because... These are the two men that would rebuild and restore Jerusalem after the exile to Babylon. Uh, we will see even an appearance of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to find him uh, pop his head up in, in chapter 8, and uh, he plays a crucial role. Now, at this time in, in Israel's history, there is this continual cycle of disobedience to God. Right? If you're familiar with any Old Testament stories, you know that there are times when Israel was doing good, following Jesus, or I mean following God, uh, pre-incarnate Christ, if you will. Uh, and then there are times that 
uh, they, were, they were following what they wanted. They were worshiping other gods. And so it, it came to a point after so many prophets that God had sent, right? Messages saying, turn back, repent of your ways, that finally the mercy had to run out. And God actually raises up an evil king to come and conquer Israel and Judah. And through a series of exiles, takes the Jewish people back to Babylon. And this all happened under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Maybe you're familiar with the book of Daniel. You guys remember hearing about any stories of Daniel, right? That is during that time period of exile that the Jews are under uh, in a different land. They're not in Jerusalem, right? Those, those, those stories we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up, those stories that we know about Daniel being thrown into a lion's den, that didn't take place in Israel. That took place in Bab- Babylon, which would then turn to Persia. And this is where we see a lot of those other prophets, minor prophets and major prophets that God would send warning. And Nehemiah is the beginning of the end of the uh, exile, uh, if you will. Now, about 70 years after that captivity, right? God brings judgment through this king, takes the Jewish people out of their land as punishment because they would not turn back to the Lord. That over time, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire are taken over by a Persian Empire under King Cyrus. Now, when King Cyrus takes place, uh, he starts to be favorable towards the Jews. And he actually begins to send Jewish people back to their homeland. He says, go, rebuild the temple. And that's when eventually Ezra finds his way uh, back into Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. The problem was, was that after the 70 years of no one living in Jerusalem that were following after God, it's, it's a desolate wasteland. The temple The glorious temple of God was destroyed. The walls are broken down. It was no longer a city. And so the people uh, experienced much pushback. And so now we find the beginning of Nehemiah chapter one, we're gonna see today the the current state of how things were at that time. Uh, Just last thing I wanna mention in the context and background, and then we'll get into Nehemiah one. I want you to note down that Nehemiah is the last historical book in the Old Testament, meaning that as the end of Nehemiah happens, chapter 13, to the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, if you will, there is a 400-year gap of silence. That Nehemiah, chapter 13, uh, goes in about 400 B.C., Right? And that would then bring us up where God is silent. He's no longer sending prophets. He's no longer speaking to them. And then uh, at the time of Jesus, we see now he begins to speak through his son that he sent. And so Nehemiah is actually the end, right? Genesis is the beginning of the historical account in the Old Testament, and Nehemiah would be the other bookend. And so without further ado, let's get into Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, which will be our text for the day. All right, you guys there? Nehemiah chapter one? All right, so we're gonna read all 11 verses and then we're gonna pray that God would uh, speak to us through his word. Sound good? Yes? All right, let's look at verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year 
as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Verse four. And so it was when I, Nehemiah, heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse five, we see his prayer. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant, covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather there from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. Father in heaven, uh, as we approach you this morning, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And Lord, we are here to hear from you. And so, Lord, would you speak so that your servants would hear? Lord, bring understanding, we ask. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So we just read the first chapter of Nehemiah, 11 verses. And the first thing that I want you to note down today is the person who Nehemiah was. The person who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah chapter 1 both begins and ends with what we need to know about who he was, the person who Nehemiah was. The first thing that I want you to note down, we find in verse one, he was an ordinary person. And we find this in verse one. Notice verse one, he says, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Anyone know who Hakaliah is? Yeah, I don't, and neither does anyone else. So what, what does this mean? Why, is it, why does he tell us that he's Nehemiah, son of, you know, it sounds like Thor, son of, right? Uh, it, it has that, that con it's like, wait, who, who is he saying that he is? Well, uh, he was a son. Uh, he had a dad. His dad's name was Hakaliah. And we don't have any more information than that, which essentially tells us that Nehemiah was, if you will, a no name. He was an ordinary person like you 
or me. He was not someone of great importance and recognition. We didn't know who he was until verse one. You don't read about him in other parts of the scriptures before this. After verse one, we'll learn a little bit more. What we do know is that Nehemiah is an Israelite. We know that because his name is Jewish and his name is Hebrew, which means Yahweh comforts. That's what we know about uh, Nehemiah's name. His name means Yahweh comforts or Yahweh brings comforts. And this seems to be the way in which God works with no names. The Bible tells us that God likes to take the simple and use it to confound the wise. We must remember, as we seek to do God's work, God's way, we seek to want to be used by God, is that God is not looking for people with high status and big names. The Bible says that God uses the humble, the weak, the simple. And we need to remember that God looks for the most ordinary people to do the most extraordinary work. Secondly, though, And we find that at the end of chapter one, look at the end of chapter one, that very last sentence, verse 11, we find that he was in an unordinary position, in an unordinary position. He says, for I was the king's cupbearer. And as a cupbearer, Nehemiah had the very precarious job of tasting what the king would eat and drink before the king ate and drank to ensure that it had not been Poisoned. You see, the king was a very powerful man uh, and he had many enemies. Nehemiah served as a right hand who would seek to protect the king. It's not that he literally just, don't, don't think about Nehemiah as he just held the cup and as a, the king wanted to drink, he was the bearer of the cup. And so the, the king would take the cup, drink it, and then put it back in Nehemiah's hand. Now that stuff might have happened, but it's much more. Nehemiah's job and position was to protect the king. And it wasn't just regarding food. As the king's cupbearer, it had to be someone that the king of all uh, Persia at this time, the big world superpower, uh, would look to Nehemiah Uh, to protect him, to be there for him. Bearing the king's cup would not have been his only task. With a position like this, the king would have had to trust him, that he would have almost been a kind of an advisor to the king, if you will. He would have gotten to know Nehemiah extensively and intimately. This was a position of influence because he had an ear to the king. You know, not everyone had this type, type of position. This was an unordinary position, but Nehemiah was an ordinary man. And so that's the person who Nehemiah was. Secondly, you can note down the period which Nehemiah existed, when Nehemiah existed, the period when Nehemiah existed. We saw the person of who he was. Now the period of time in which he existed. Look at verse one, look at your Bibles, right? We get his name, Nehemiah, who who his daddy is. And then it says, and it came to pass, and we get a timeline, in the month of Chislev, oh, I love that month, in the 20th year. And you might say, so wait, is this like BC 20, and what the heck is a Chislev, and and what's, what's, what's going on here? Well, this is what we know about the time period in which Nehemiah existed. He would have been born during the captivity, okay? He would have been born during the exile of the Jewish people. It is most likely that Nehemiah had never seen Israel. He had never been to Jerusalem, but had only heard 
of his fathers, his grandfathers, his, his ancestry living there in the glory of the kingdom days, the glory of the temple in King David. But we find him here in chapter one in the month of Chislev. Okay, this is a, a Babylonian slash Persian calendar. Uh, Chislev would have been between, uh, basically starts midway of November to midway December. So Chislev is November to December, about halfway in between each month. Now, the 20th year, this is a reference to not like how many years the world had been in existence. The 20th year is based upon the king's reign. And so what we know is that the current king was King Artaxerxes. And this king's had been reigning for 20 years by the time that we come to chapter one. Remember, kings back then were powerful, like no one in this world is powerful to this day. Uh, that they were powerful in the sense that they literally were like, when they would step into office, if you will, to reign, they'd be like, we're starting the calendar over. It's year one, right? I mean, th this is the type of atmosphere in which this was. Now, you guys know about the, have you guys ever read about the story of Esther? Awesome. This happens in a very similar timeline. Esther happens in between the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It happens somewhere in between there. And you can remember, do you remember in the story of Esther how the king was? He was a little nuts, right? That's why it was such a big deal for Esther to, well, okay, well, maybe I'll go in, but the king hasn't called me. And it's like this very, this very powerful man. Well, similar to Esther, uh, Esther was told by her uncle Mordecai, and it would have been in the same place, the same palace, the same um, area. And I want you to note down Esther 4.14. What her, her uncle Mordecai told her, he said, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, I believe for Nehemiah, like Esther, God had raised him up to a position to be able to use him. You see, God knew to have Esther, who was an ordinary person, to be in an unordinary position for extraordinary purposes. And I think Nehemiah is the same. Nehemiah was an ordinary person who was in an unordinary position, and he was going to be used for extraordinary purposes. And so Nehemiah was in this position for this time for a purpose. Now, on the outside, anyone looking in would see Nehemiah, would see his position, and they'd say, oh, wow, he must serve the king. He is the king's cupbearer. Yet little would they know until after that he wasn't there just for the purposes of art exerces, but he was there for the purposes of the king of kings. Now, thirdly, I want you to note down the place where Nehemiah lived. We saw the person who Nehemiah was. We saw the period in which Nehemiah existed. And thirdly, I want you to note down the place where Nehemiah lived. We, all, we have not been even out of verse one yet. So look at verse one, the place where Nehemiah lived. This is all very important information uh, for us to understand this entire series and what's going on. Well, we see in verse one, notice we see the, the name, we see the timing, and then after that, he says, as I was in Shushan. Everyone say Shushan. That's just a fun, you know, you got to say it again. Shushan. It's fun to say. Uh, the Shushan the citadel. Okay, Shushan or Susa is a location. Shushan, you can note down, is the capital of the Persian 
empire, okay? So like Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States, so is Shushan, or Susa, was the capital of the empire at the time. And it says that he was in Shushan, and he was in the citadel. The citadel is another word for a fortified palace. It was the castle, if you will. This was the place where the kings would dwell, meaning that Nehemiah, out of this entire, this the one world superpower at the time, they, there was no one more powerful than this king. There was no one more powerful than this kingdom. And Nehemiah found himself in an unordinary position. Warren Wiersbe says this. I want you to look on the screen. Warren Wiersbe, he was a Bible commentator and a, a fantastic pastor. He says this, when God wants to accomplish a work, he always prepares his workers and puts them in the right places at the right time. You see, we're going to see Nehemiah accomplish great things, but it's not because he was thinking, I'm going to be in this position. I'm going to do this. This was God's plan. This was God's purposes. And same for you in your life, that the, the place and the period in which you live is for a purpose. Meaning you weren't accidentally, what year were you born? 2005, 2004, what year? 2008, oh my gosh. Okay, yes, I always forget. What, what, year, what year were you born? Yell it out. 2008, okay. So you were born in that year for a purpose. It wasn't like an accident where God's like, Ooh, wow, they were supposed to be born 2,000 years earlier. What? Whoops. No, it was for a purpose. Whatever city you were born in, whatever street you live on, is because God has placed you there and he is preparing you for his purposes. I want you to notice Acts 17.26. This is an amazing verse that gives us insight into how God works in our life. Acts 17, 26 says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has, pre, and has determined their pre-pointed times and boundaries of dwellings. I mean that the, the time period and the place in which you live, it's God who has done that so that he can use you. That we need to understand that it's not that we need to be, oh, I wish I was born in a different time. I wish I was born in a different place. Then I could be used by God. No. The family in which you were born into, the place in which you currently are, God says, those are the things that I have planned. And I have purposes that you need to walk in. And so for Nehemiah, he was in, in a sense, the right place at the right time because of Almighty God. The fourth thing I want you to note down is the problem which Nehemiah heard, right? We saw the person, we saw the period, we saw the place, and finally we see the problem. We find this in verses two through three. Verses two through three. You guys still have your Bibles open? Notice he says that, then Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. He says, how are things going? Uh, wh what's going on? I know that Jews have been going back and under Cyrus years ago. Uh, what's the current st uh, status of things? What's going on, Hanani? And he says, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from that captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And so we're introduced to a guy named Hanani, 
uh, short for Hananiah. But it's interesting, Hananiah doesn't just seem to be one of like his brothers uh, in the sense of like brethren, like you're my bro, okay? Like he was actually one of his brothers. Uh, from, the, from the text, when you read it, it's like, oh, one of my brethren, one of the many brethren of, of, the, of the nation of Israel. No, no, like Hananiah was actually his brother. We know that from Nehemiah 7.2, later on in the book, he says that I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. Now, we are uncertain of why, but we know that there is this group that travel back to Persia from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah gets word of it. And so he goes and he says, oh my gosh, you guys are back. Like, how are things going? What's the status of things? And it is there that Nehemiah sought to ask regarding the state of how things had been going. And what I want you to notice, he had, he had concern for two things, okay? Number one, he had concern for the people of God. And number two, he had concern for the place of God. Now, these things at the time, they really kind of went hand in hand. Now, the people of God are all over the world, right? But at this point in the Old Testament, the people of God were usually centrally located uh, in Israel and even more specifically in Jerusalem. And so he says, how are the people? Uh, how's the place? What's, what's going on? And the report is negative. The report is not good. He says they're in great distress and reproach, meaning that they're, they are suffering, that, that it is a disaster. They're going through hardship and they're experiencing reproach. They're experiencing shame and dishonor that the other nations around Jerusalem are like, these chumps, what, what are these people doing back here? They, aren't they, haven't they been taken captive? You see, this was not normal. Israel, Jerusalem for years was a nation to be revered, was a nation of glory and honor. But now the Bible says that these people bring report that the place of God, these walls and gates are not just like, oh, like there's a, you know, there's a bolt that's loose. There's a brick that's knocked down. The gates are destroyed. They're burned with fire that this place is not what it once was. Now, it wasn't that Nehemiah loved the walls of Jerusalem. It wasn't like, oh, the walls and all of its mighty. No, it's what it represented. The fact that the walls were broken down had very big significance. We know from the study of ancient history that in the ancient world, a city without walls was completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. They had no defense and no protection at all. Basically, if you didn't have walls around your city, you weren't really a city that this was one of the, the defining marks, right? Uh, maybe you can think about the walls of Jericho. This is one of the, the marks that really made a city protected from its enemies. And so really what they were communicating is that, I mean, we kind of built the temple, but there's, there, there's not really a city. No one's really living there. It's a disaster. Now, it wasn't that Nehemiah had never had a problem before, but I want you to notice how this problem hit him differently. Let, let's notice how this very short conversation with his brother would be the catalyst, would be the catapult to, to launch him into the work of God. It's rather a small conversation, right? Look at verse two and three in your Bibles. It's not this like extensive, like, you know, uh, conversation. It's, it's a couple sentences. And yet it would be, listen, it would be this sentence that would change Nehemiah's life. It's been said before that big doors swing on small hinges. 
I have found that the small things in our life are the preparation for the bigger things that we go through. It, might, oh, it was just a small conversation. Yeah, but it was that small conversation that completely changed the entire path of someone's life. And so finally, we'll end here with the prayer which Nehemiah prayed. And this is really the bulk of the chapter. We'll only, we're not going to read the whole prayer again like we did in the beginning, but I do want to read once more verse 4, which is his reaction. And so it says, So it was when he heard these words, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so we find that the rest of this chapter is his prayer in which he prayed. The Bible says that his initial reaction is that he sat down, he wept, he mourned. Meaning it hit him. It wasn't just like, oh man, that's a bummer. All right, king, what do you need now? No, no, th this, this hit his heart, his, his el corazón, okay? his heart. This, this hit everything in him. And notice what it turned into, though. It wasn't just that he was just like a mess. He was just this emotional wreck. He was just a pile of tears. But that from that pile of tears, it turned in, notice verse 4, to praying and fasting before the God of heaven. Notice the problem, though, that he heard was not a personal problem. This wasn't a personal problem. Meaning this didn't affect his life in Persia. He lived in the nicest place in the whole entire kingdom. Yes, he served the king. He had a rather nice position. He experienced, I'm sure, the, the cushiness of the king's palace. This didn't affect his occupation. This didn't affect his livelihood. It was in a different place with the people that he had, you know, it, it, was, it was connected. Yet, it was a problem that affected his heart. It, it really, when you read verse four, what it's describing, why it says, wait, why did he sit down? Why did he weep? Why did he mourn? It broke him. It, it affected him so greatly. It's interesting to note that Jesus wept over this same city. The same city. He's, he's weeping over Jerusalem. And then you see in the New Testament, Jesus come to this point when he sees the city and Jesus begins to weep over the city of Jerusalem. Why did Jesus weep? It was because he looked at the people he realized that they had missed it. That all that God had planned for that city, that they would not experience it. And so Nehemiah, he knew what Jerusalem should have been. He knew that it should have been the central place of worship, that all in the world could come to Jerusalem and worship, and that yet it was burned down with fire. It was not even considered a city. Alan Redpath, a Bible commentator, he says, Nehemiah was called to build the wall but first he had to weep over the ruins. First he had to weep over the ruins. Now, this was clearly a burden that was put on Nehemiah's heart, right? This was, this was heavy on his heart. The question for you and I, I, I don't think you're gonna see me up here weeping about, you know, someone tells me, hey, there's a wall that's broken down in Jerusalem. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that doesn't affect me. But what does affect us as Christ followers? Do we have a burden for the ruins of lives, the broken lives that lay before us? We're not called to build a wall, but we all are called to be a part of what Jesus defined as building his church. 
There are people in whom our, that we have in our lives and their lives are broken down and ruined. Their gates are burned and some of them don't even know it. Will we fast for them? Uh, will we pray for them? You see, God's work for us as Christians is not about a place. It is about a people and it is the people that God created. It is not only his church that he redeemed, but it is for the lost people that exists on our planet. You see, it was clear that, that this was put on Nehemiah's heart. This was this burden that Nehemiah had that I believe was God-given that God wanted to use him. But before God did something through Nehemiah, we see the preparation of prayer. He did something in him. And this is always how God works. Before God is going to ever use you to influence other people for the gospel, he first has to work in you before he can work through you. This is a principle of doing God's work God's way. He uses the preparation of prayer in one's life. Think about it. Think about the Bible stories you know. Moses met with God at the burning bush. Joshua met with the commander of the Lord's army. Daniel had a custom of prayer. Jeremiah begins with prayer. Paul had a time of being used where he encountered Jesus. The disciples had that Jesus time and so on and so on it goes. And this is no different. The book of Nehemiah opens up with prayer. And as we continue through this book and our study together, we're going to see that, that Nehemiah continues to pray. He is a man of prayer. It's awesome. Sometimes they're longer, right? Look, look at your Bibles, verse 5 through verse 11. That's a pretty decent sized prayer. There's going to be other times in chapter 2 that we're going to see it's one sentence. He just throws up these quick prayers before the Lord. And ultimately, we're going to find in chapter 13 that the book closes in prayer. It opens in prayer and closes in prayer. Now, today, we're not going to be getting in, into the nitty-gritty of verses 5 through 11. Uh, but I do think it's worth some consideration and meditation. However, what I would like you to understand is the time period. So notice in verse 4, he says that he prayed and fasted for many days. He sat down, wept, mourned for many days. And he says, wow, that, that turned into fasting and praying. Uh, many days, the, the season, uh, we're going to open up next week, chapter two, and we're going to get one of those next kind of crazy months. You can look in verse two, verse one, you'll see the month of Nisan, also not a month that we're familiar with. And from the point of chapter one to the beginning of chapter two, there are four months that pass, 120 days, 120 days. That that what we find here, this recorded prayer, it's not that Nehemiah prayed this once. No, there is this season of prayer and fasting. It really, what I see verses 5 through 11 at, as is a summary of, of Nehemiah's heart uh, during this time. These are the types of things that he prayed. And again, I told you we're not going to get into the nitty gritty, but something I do want you to note down, and maybe you've heard it before, um, something that you can find in this prayer uh, that fits it pretty, pretty dang close and something that is biblical and scriptural is the ACTS prayer model. And this is just an acronym, right? It's an acrostic uh, for us to be able to understand how you and I should pray. I believe that there's prayers that are, because it could have just said Nehemiah prayed and move on to chapter two, right? But God saw fit that this prayer would be recorded. And I think prayers are recorded in the Bible so we can understand, God, how do you want me to pray? 
Uh, what, are, what are some of the principles how I can pray to you? Because I want to experience that. I want to I experience your, your work in my life to be then used by you. Well, the Acts prayer model is a beneficial one. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. This is what a good base to start, right? Adoring God, praising him. God, you are the king of kings. And we see that here. Uh, and then you see confession, thanksgiving, bringing in scripture. And then finally, supplication. That's the idea of request. To supplicate is to ask for something. Now, if you notice the end though, and I'll just point your attention finally to verse 11 and then we'll close. Verse 11, look at the, the end. He, he gets very specific. He says, and I pray, grant him mercy. He's talking about himself, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man. He's referring to the king, and it's a prayer about himself. If you notice at the end, it was not a prayer. It wasn't a prayer, God, send someone else to go fix those walls. God, send someone else to do the work. No, Rather, it was a prayer like the prophet of Isaiah, here I am, send me. And so before Nehemiah would do anything, he would do the most important thing and, and is, is pray. We'll close with this quote, John Bunyan. It's a little bit of a mind twister, but it is good and the truth is rich. John Bunyan, an awesome author, man of God, he says this, and bear with me, okay, listen. You can do more than pray after you pray. Meaning if, if there's prayer, then you can now do more, right? You shouldn't just pray and do nothing. No, prayer is now the, the, the trampoline, the, the, the catapult, if you will, to then launch you into doing God's work. You can do more than, than pray after you prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Did you catch it? You get it? We can do a lot after we pray, but we cannot do anything because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we see Nehemiah was dependent upon him. So what's the application for you and me? You will find that God will put burdens on your heart. You will begin to feel the weight of what the work of God has for you. And it always involves people. And this is good. There should be times that you are broken for someone else, for a people group, for whatever it might be. But the question for you is, will you respond? Will you allow those burdens to hit your heart and break you? Or you will have the option. You can push it off and shrug it off like the prophet Jonah and you say, God, send someone else. Well, today, may we enter into the preparation of prayer for all the good works that God has prepared for us that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this day and we thank you for this time. We pray that you would uh, really just resonate these words, this story in our hearts. Lord, we don't want to get to heaven realizing that there was all this work that you wanted us to do, but we failed to do it because we just shrugged it off. We put it on someone else. That's what the pastor will do. That's what a missionary does when, Lord, you have called us to work ourselves. And so, Lord, may we be sensitive to the, the things in which we hear. A simple conversation. Lord, I know that you could use it to, to so work into us what you want to work out of us. And so, Lord, we present ourselves to you. We give you our hands. We give you our feet. We give you our mouths and our ears and our, our minds and our hearts and our entire body. And we present ourselves a living sacrifice just wanting to fulfill 
the things you have for us. And so we pray this in, in your son's precious name, in Jesus' name. Amen.